Hello, Pilates lovers. Welcome to All Things Pilates. I'm Darian Gold. And exhale and exhale and deepen your exhale as the carriage comes in. The arms come down. Make sure that front leg is bent and reach up, 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 up. Good. And again. Mercy Sidberry, today's guest, has a unique teaching style. Based on her strong anatomical knowledge, as well as her decades as a modern dancer. Our topic in this episode is the pelvic girdle and Mercy's explanations of the role of the pelvis and its influence on the spine is easy to follow. Because of the pandemic, Mercy now teaches her MAC classes online. As always, they are exploratory and educational, and they give you the tools to know your body and the nuances only you can feel. Her goal is to help you develop a keener sense of your body. At the end of the show, Mercy shares her contact information, as I'm sure many of you will want to reach out and sign up for her classes. I'd like to begin with a little story. The pelvic girdle is similar to a lead actor in a play. The lead actor sets the tone and calls the shots. But there is also the supporting cast, and just like with the supporting cast, in the body, there are hands, arms, shoulders, the head, the feet, shins, and thighs. But they don't move correctly until they get their cue from the lead actor, and from what is our topic for today, the pelvic girdle. There is, however, one supporting cast member that is so vital and so integral to the success of the lead actor, and in our case, the pelvic girdle, that it needs to be mentioned and even highlighted. This cast member's name is the psoas, the psoas major to be more specific. Joining me in the studio is my guest, Mercy Sidberry, and she'll explain about the anatomy of the pelvic girdle and also why the psoas perhaps should have its own play and be cast as the lead character. But before I do introduce Mercy, a little background about her. For the last 40-plus years, Mercy has been a dancer, choreographer, and movement teacher. She spent over a decade as a dance medicine specialist at St. Francis Memorial Hospital's Center for Sports Medicine in San Francisco. Since moving to Sonoma County in 1999, she has had a private practice in Sebastopol, her studio called Bodywise Pilates. Mercy was introduced to Pilates by two of the original Pilates disciples, Pilates elders as they are called, Kathy Grant and Eve Gentry. And it was Eve Gentry that she felt most akin to. Mercy was also privileged to expand her Pilates education with many of the other elders, including Romana Krasinowska, Bruce King, and Ron Fletcher. With an emphasis on body mechanics and corrective exercise, Mercy explores with her students various ways to deepen into the body and uses the Pilates principles to help them move more freely, 
through healthier movement patterns. Hello, Mercy. Thank you so much for joining us today on All Things Pilates. I'm very happy to be here with you. Me too. I'm very happy. First question. Can you give us an overview of the pelvic girdle? And is there a difference between if someone says my pelvis or my pelvic girdle? Well, technically, the girdle part is the part of the pelvis is the bridge between the legs and the spine. So there's the axial skeleton, which is the, what we consider the torso with the spine and the ribs, the sternum, the head. And then there are the things, that, the parts of the skeleton that attach the limbs. So that's called the appendicular skeleton. The girdles, the shoulder girdle and the pelvic girdle, attach the limbs to the spine, to the torso. So if you specifically say pelvic girdle, you're particularly talking about the, the hip bones. And the pelvis includes the sacrum and the tailbone. This is why the pelvis is considered the center of the human body, because the shoulder girdle and the pelvic girdle, it is the center of the body. Can you explain that? Well, I would say because we're mostly upright beings, we are performing a particularly admirable task of being able to carry all of the important organs and structures that keep us alive upright on these two legs and these two little feet. And so the part of the body that is housing the vital organs, the main blood supply, all of that would be the center of the body. And then the limbs would be what would either carry you around if you were a quadruped or in our case, just our legs carry us around and our Arms are meant for manipulating and changing the environment and, and bringing to us what we want, what we need. Where does the psoas play into all this? It's a very famous muscle, and so many people talk about the psoas. I'm not sure if they know the correct function of the psoas. I think it's helpful just to go, okay, now we're shifting to a muscular mindset. So when you're talking about the pelvic girdle and the shoulder girdle, spine, uh, that's bones. And so when you shift to speaking about the psoas, you're talking about what moves the bones. One of the things I think is important is to, you know, we, we talk about the psoas, we say the psoas, but a little bit like the blend between pelvis and pelvic girdle, the complex of the iliopsoas is really an important part of the muscular structure. It helps the complex be involved in both uprightness, organizing the spine to the pelvis, to the legs, and moving it. So the psoas is a very long muscle. I think of it like braids from the very bottom thoracic vertebra all the way down across the waist, the inside of the waist, across the pelvis, and then it dips back over the inguinal canal to the lesser trochanters of the leg. So it goes across all of the lumbars, across through the, the pelvis, and then down and attaches to the inner part of the legs. So it's predominantly considered a hip flexor, but because it, which means bringing your knee, your thigh towards your body, but because it crosses so many joints, that's really a very, it's an important aspect of its role, but it plays a very large in how the spinal segments orient themselves. 
from the inside. There are spinal muscles on the outside that do that too, but the spinal muscles on the inside. And so the psoas then become this with the iliacus, which is the ilio part of the iliopsoas. It's an anchor for the movement of the thigh on the body. If someone has a pelvic girdle that has inhibition or tightness or weakness, is it necessarily the psoas or the uh, iliacus involved in what's happening with the pelvic girdle? I would say more than likely there's an involvement, whether it's primary or not. That's hard to say. It depends on what things, what's going on. But there's going to be an involvement. The One of the things about the psoas is that there are essentially two types of muscles. One are considered more tonic or postural muscles, and then there are the muscles that are more involved in movement. And the psoas is a tonic muscle. So it's got a stabilizing nature, but it's also then meant to be a mover of the leg, a primary mover of the leg inflection. So it's, you know, it's complex. It's quite complex. And how does that present itself if you have a new student coming in? What would give you the indication that their psoas is either short, weak, tight? I generally just watch people walk first. I just watch them walk away from me, towards me. I I will oftentimes watch them walk to the side. So if there's a pronounced pelvic torsion, then there's going to be an asymmetry in how the psoas manages that torsion. If there's the psoas at the lumbar level is a side bender on the same side as that psoas. So if there's a held side bend in that direction, that psoas will be short. But really, if in general, if I see any kind of restrictive pattern that includes ribs to pelvis to leg, there's going to be an involvement on some level. Without getting too technical, what is the origin and insertion of the iliopsoas? The psoas major attaches onto the 12th thoracic vertebra. And that what I find really interesting about these is that it attaches onto the sides of the body of the vertebra and then also onto the transverse process, the back of the trans. So it's very much a side of spine muscle. It's that's why you kind of think about it like braids on the side of the head, you know. And so it goes down, attaches onto every body, every disc of the lumbars, every transverse process, and then it does not attach onto the sacrum. It leaves the spine at L5 and then it goes forward. The iliacus actually is like, I use the analogy of Mickey Mouse ears, that the pelvis looking like the ears on Mickey Mouse. And it would be the pink part on the inside of the flare of the ear would be the iliacus because it's a very broad attachment onto the inside of the bone. So it's, it's also majorly involved in stabilizing the pelvic bones in relationship to the spine for supporting clear leg movement. And then how does the transverse abdominis play into these two that we're talking about? So all these muscles are very much attached directly onto the bones. The transverse abdominis is surrounds the viscera. It attaches into the spine via the thoracolumbar fascia, and then attaches onto the bottoms of the ribs all the way up towards to the xiphoid process, the sternum, and then all the way across the crest of the ilium down to the pubic bone. 
So it's a very broad attachment to these parts of the bony structure, but it's a it's a little distant to the spine. So the way it affects the spine is it actually pulls on it from the sides. And, and but the psoas is directly on every single one of the vertebrae. You would say that it is attached by its own its own tendon, which is is the fascia, the thoracolumbar fascia, but it's the psoas is a little bit more intimate with the with the <laughs> spine with the lumbar spine. Do you have to have a healthy psoas to have a functioning transverse abdominis? What well they're all so involved with one another, but what I would say is one of the most important aspects to having the transverse abdominis easily activatable is to have a flexible rib cage. Because of the attachment of the of the upper part of the muscle onto every single one of the ribs it attaches onto the, the cartilage bridge from the xiphoid down, but it, it actually attaches right onto the 11th, right onto the floating ribs, 12th. And so all of that flexibility is very much going to make a difference in whether you're Internal or external obliques are dominant, one side versus the other. You know, I think of the transverse abdominus as it's really to create compression, a gentle compression and containment of the viscera, of the abdominal viscera. You just are looking for a very balanced tone through that whole opening that it, it covers. And so it's it doesn't act on its own. It acts in conjunction with the multifidus in, in the spine. And Can it, you explain what that is for those who have never heard that word <laughs> until right now? <laughs> sure. The multifidus, is, it's a little bit like as intimate to the spine as the psoas is to the front of the spine. It's that intimate to the back of the spine. So it grows off of the uh, sacrum, starts at the sacrum, and grows right on the surface of the bone and is in a chevron pattern, they call it. So it's a little bit like arrow tips pointing upwards. So it goes from lateral to medial on an upward cast. And once it gets from, it goes from the sacrum and it starts attaching into the lumbar spine, it goes from the transverse processes to the spinous processes. So it's like an arrow pointing towards the base of the skull. And the same pattern goes all the way up from the sacrum to the second cervical vertebra. So every other back muscle it's like it's taking a detour off to a very lovely setting on the side or you know they they don't they don't reiterate this exact same pattern all the way from the sacrum basically close to the skull they, these do and so they are what they do is when they tone they're basically like car jacks they push from the base and push the spinous process up so they are very much involved in decompression of the spine and then if you've got that going on in the back and then the transverse abdominis secures that, it's considered a corset. So that that entire activation is one of decompression of the vertebra, the actual vertebra. And then if that tone is held through movement, anything you do, side bend, forward bend, so that the bones never compress onto one another. Now, do you think Mr. Pilates, even though he didn't have a functional anatomy understanding, I don't think. He had a, lots of intuition, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. Do you think this is where his his exercises could get deep into the body? Like you're saying, he may not have the vocabulary. Or would you say, and this is maybe 
and you coming back and talking about the difference between classical Pilates and contemporary Pilates. But do you think the original exercises promote what you are talking about? Or is there perhaps too much compression? We were taught to always lengthen and then deepen and strengthen. You know, because I was not trained classically, I don't, um, I can't really answer that from my own personal experience. But what I think is that because the exercise base was so vast, it's so comprehensive, that through you know doing all of the exercises as a group, it that it was built in, and that the idea of you know different teachers teach lengthening in different ways, but there's very much the the aspect of control. There is very much the aspect of breathing as a part of it. So in just in basic, basic ways, if you allow the body to fully expand as you inhale, and then as you exhale, you gently secure that with the toning of the muscles, you are doing that. You may not be turning on specific things, but you know, I venture to say that if you are going through the level development with care and with that idea of lengthening being the focus of your strengthening process, I wouldn't doubt that the body would come to that at certain points. I think where it does diverge is if the focus is so much on flat back and how, you know, flat back instead of neutral spine, there's a way that if you certainly can take that corseting that I was describing is called in physical therapy terms called the inner unit if you're if that's engaged you can flex it without losing the connection to these particular muscles and their role if you just massively contract the abdominal muscles you are just you're actually stretching that and therefore it's not going to provide that lengthening or that that protection of the the disc spaces so i think it just kind of is how it gets interpreted in the body when you were speaking about breathing, can you say a little bit more about the role of the diaphragm? Because I do have students that ask me regularly about breathing, and I have my own questions that I will ask you in my next lesson with you. Can you speak to the importance of using the diaphragm correctly? The diaphragm is one of the muscles that's involved in this inner unit. So the inner unit is a is like a can, basically. The diaphragm's the top of the can. The pelvic floor is the bottom of the can. Transverse abdominis is mostly the sides of the can, and the little multifidus line up the back is the is the little stripe of back. So all of those muscles work together to create this containment that's very flexible and breathable. So the diaphragm is attached to in you know in the underside to where the transverse abdominus is all the way around that whole ridge of cartilage 11th rib 12th rib and then on, down onto the spine there are these roots that go down to L2 on the uh L2 on the uh, right and L3 on the left or I may be backwards on that but it goes down into the spine so the diaphragm should descend on the inhale and it creates a little bit of compression on the viscera and that is what establishes the clear tube of intra-abdominal pressure. That is what we're, we want to use the outward expression of the viscera to help us posturally so that we're not always just compressing on. We let them ex 
express themselves in that outward way. So we just add muscularly what's necessary beyond that. So if we're tightening our back or we're pulling down on one side, those especially those floating ribs, they don't really get to have that tube-like nature of dropping down like a shower curtain from the rung down into the into the bathtub of the pelvis. They get a little crunched. And so the the diaphragm gets kind of distorted a little bit that way too. So I think it's one of the reasons that one of the first exercises that I I remember being taught and that I also teach is, is that posterior lateral breathing to get the 11th, 12th, and 10th and those those lower ribs to flare out to the back a little bit. Were you taught this on your back or were you sitting? I think probably sitting, yeah, so that you can palpate a little bit easier. I'm really curious for you to talk a little bit about your experience with Eve Gentry. Oh, Eve, <laughs> I'd be happy to. <laughs> Eve, I, I have... I studied with her up here and that pulled me down to study with her in, in Santa Fe. She was introduced to me by one of my dance teachers, Shelley Larson, who was also in uh, the same dance company that I was in in San Francisco. And so Shelley was teaching many of Eve's exercises in her classes. And so I, I remember going to her studio the first time she lived in Santa Fe. She's looking out and her eyes were this like crystal blue color. And I was just like, Tell me. <laughs> Take me. <laughs> she she was this small, tiny little woman and just a powerhouse. And she had moved to Santa Fe in the 60s with her husband after t- after a big dance career, working with, you know, some of the developers of all of this in New York. Uh, she was a first she was a student of, of Joseph Pilates. And she went to Santa Fe and there really wasn't that much action. So she went in, she she went internal and she started feeling into what these exercises were all about. And she was using the Pilates exercises as her base. But she had also studied with Ermgard Bartanieff and who broke down movement into its base six fundamental uh, movement patterns. And so she really studied what what are the hips do? What is the leg doing? What's a hip shift? All these kinds of things. And she went on with that and she applied it to the Pilates work. You know, it's called a lot of different things, but it was called for a while pre-Pilates. And I got way into that. And that's where the pre-Pilates very much works with the psoas and works with getting that all those muscles that tend to be more held to be more pliable and be more felt because for most people that it's not an area in the body you can even feel so it's very much about going in weight sensing moving from a sense of spreading out letting yourself be held by the ground or the surface or whatever it's underneath all of that and then you pull it back out and perform the pilates exercises even more clearly did eve speak this way to you, mm-hmm. the, these concepts and vocabulary. And- yeah, her prime thing that kind of came down with her is called imprinting. Imprinting came from Bartenev, and it was all about that. It was about weight sensing. It was about yielding. It was about letting yourself use the ground as the push-off point. So, yes, yeah, she definitely talked about that. And how long did you work with her? I went for intensive times for, you know, she would come to San Francisco. So, I mean, it really, our face-to-face contact probably wasn't more than a couple months, but it was over a number of years. What were the years? It was 89, I think I went down there in 91, 92, something like that. I hope that you'll come back and perhaps tell us 
um, more stories and your more experiences with Eve, because we, those of us who learn from Romana, we hear a lot of stories through her lens about Mr. Pilates and our own experience with Romana. It would be great to have your experience, more of your experiences with Eve. If people want to get a hold of you and take a lesson or learn more about workshops that you do, like pre-Pilates sounds fantastic, how can they reach you? What's the best contact information? My email is Mercy Sidbury, M-E-R-C-Y-S-I-D-B-U-R-Y at Comcast.net. I don't have a website. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> so that's the best way. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> okay, it's great. And all of you, she's a fabulous teacher. I can just give you firsthand experience. Thank you so much for your time today, Mercy. Thank you, Darren. And I, I hope that you'll come back. Love to. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope it inspired you. In order that you don't miss any of the great conversations, please subscribe as it will also help others find the show. All Things Pilates is produced and hosted by me, Darian Gold. It originates as a live radio show on KPCA in Petaluma, California. Podcast production is provided by Audio Ephemera. Hey there, I'm Andy, the audio engineer for All Things Pilates. And as cliche as it sounds, I'm also a client. My Pilates practice has strengthened my core and more importantly, given me a new awareness of my body and its abilities. Darian's approach is challenging but fun, and I always leave my sessions feeling energized. But don't just take my word for it. I recently visited one of Darian's classes, and here's what some other students had to say. Uh, My name's Kate, and I've been working with Darian for about six years. I started with her on mat classes, and then I moved to uh, working with her in her home studio, both in duets and privates on the reformer and the one chair and the other equipment. To do it well takes uh, dedication to continuing over and over. My name is Suzanne. I've been taking Pilates with Darian since November. It's giving me more connection with the subtle movements of my body. I think she's an excellent teacher because I like the fact that she pays attention to everybody's positioning while they're working, as well as giving little tips that make sense to them. When you're in a class, it's so easy to get lost in the group. Subscribe to the podcast for more great interviews and check out DarianGold.com for her class schedule and other resources. Until next time, draw those ribs together.